Hello, and welcome again to the Radio Gaga podcast. I'm your host, Justine Pajowski, and today's episode is part one of the story of disco. Before we get started today, there's no question this has been a difficult week. It's been hard to find the right words to say and to understand how to help. Our brothers and sisters in the African-American community every day fight generational and systemic inequality that many of us will never personally know. So much of the music we all love, more than we realize, has roots in African-American history. Just one example is today's genre, disco. Disco music was born out of American R&B, soul, Motown, and funk, which can be traced back to gospel and the blues, which traces back to the earliest forms of African-American music, slave spirituals. These songs eased the drudgery of working all day, sometimes sent messages that were understood only by other slaves, and allowed them to dream about a world of comfort, one with peace, and one without injustice. As, as a music fan, I have no words to truly thank the African-American community for the contributions it has made throughout history to music and the arts in general. What I can do is listen. I can read. I can study. I can volunteer, I can donate, I can do more. There are a number of organizations you can support that support music and the arts in African-American communities, including Trombone Shorty's NOLA-based Trombone Shorty Foundation and the new National Museum of African-American Music in Nashville. Look on your local level, too. An organization that DJ and I support here in Jacksonville is JAMS, Jacksonville Arts and Music School, which provides opportunities in music and the arts for our inner city kids here in Jax. Let's stand up for our friends, support Black creators, and as my friend Paul says, and it always sticks with me, be excellent to one another. Love you all, and thank you for listening. Let's get into the story of disco. My main source for the story of Disco series was the book Turn the Beat Around by Peter Shapiro. I also watched the Studio 54 documentary, which was really interesting, and I'll reference other sources as we go. This is a three-part series that will take place within about a two-decade span, from the mid-60s through the end of 1983. In this episode, we'll talk about some of the earliest indicators of the disco sound, even reaching back to the 30s and 40s, but largely this episode will focus on the mid-60s to mid-70s. We'll talk about how disco arrived in New York City, the epicenter of the movement, and how it expanded from there. Then episode two will cover around 1975 to 1978, which include the golden years of disco. Finally, our third episode will cover 78 through 83 as disco began to lose steam. But we'll also look a little bit into disco's far-reaching effect on future decades of music. Ultimately, that last bit was the impetus for wanting to do a series about disco. As many of you did, I grew up around a lot of different styles of music, including funk, soul, and disco. As a genre, it's not my favorite. I think a lot of people may say that, but we know it when we hear it. 
And right now, I hear it a lot. And I don't mean the hits by Gloria Gaynor or the Bee Gees or Donna Summer. Some of the key elements of disco music, including the four on the floor drum beat, cowbells, strings, the heavy bass line, and the little boo sound, it is all over the music that's been coming out just in the past two or three years. three or four songs you just heard there, those are on the top 100 chart right now in 2020. We write off disco as being stuck in time, disco is dead, that kind of thing. But I don't think disco ever really died at all. Over the next few episodes, we'll break down how disco carved out a place for itself in the national conversation then and now, and what it was that made people either fall in love with it or violently hate it. As far as music genres go, disco is one of just a few that can call itself a full-bodied cultural movement. 
there was a lot more to it than the music. There's the fashion, the drug scene, and a culture that engaged marginalized groups like the Latino and African-American communities and the gay community. There was the New York City underground, Andy Warhol at Studio 54, David Mancuso's loft parties, the disco-era films. We'll try to touch on all of this at some point or another, but it really was music that was the driving force behind the culture, so that's going to be our main focus. I'm also going to stick mostly to what was hot in the United States, though disco's roots are much more far-reaching, so we'll touch on the international aspect of disco as well. Many of us, including myself, are at a slight disadvantage as we weren't even alive during this cultural phenomenon. But we'll have some help from someone who was. My dad, David, is joining me for this series to help provide some extra insight into the disco era. He went to discotheques with my mom, he worked at a record store and saw firsthand what was flying off the shelves, and he definitely owned more than one pair of bell-bottom pants and platform shoes. So, he's legit. (laughs) Discotheque is the combination of two French words, disc meaning record, and bibliotheque, library. The word can be traced back to World War II. The Swing Jugend, Swing Kids, were an alternative youth movement to Hitler Jugend, Hitler Youth, in Nazi Germany. The Swing Kids were largely apolitical, middle and upper class, who wore long hair, which was in unwavering opposition to the order that men must wear military-length hair, and they danced to the swing music of Louis Armstrong and Nat Ganella. They'd set up these pop-up parties around town with a portable gramophone and swing records. But when they were found, the Gestapo would be notified. Gatherings continued, covert events that were just as quickly organized as they would be shut down. They were a subculture with uninhibited sexuality, interesting dress, indulging in the midst of a scary cultural climate. I mean, this was the source point of the disco aesthetic, just 30 years early. The French word discotheque came to be when the swing Yugen trend spread to Nazi-occupied Paris. Les Zazus, with their loud music and pompadour hairstyles, would go to the outskirts of Paris to small cafes and have dance parties. But they became such a headache to the authorities that in 1942, gangs of thugs would be sent after them and instructed to cut the hair off any Zazus they could get their hands on. But Hitler didn't hate the nightlife. He actually wanted Paris to continue to operate, A, because he figured with all this decadence, France would more likely be defeated quickly, and B, because his officers liked being entertained at places like the famed Moulin Rouge and 122. But it was the underground counterculture of the Zazus and the Swing Kids he didn't like. In 1942 and 1943, both the Swing, Jugend, and Zazus became such a problem that Nazis arrested hundreds of them in Germany and France and sent them to work camps. But there were still many of them who hadn't been caught and were able to stay underground and strategize. They'd meet at a little basement club called La Discotheque, drink alcohol, and listen to American jazz records. Eventually, as the war went on, Nazis had to divert resources away from the ban on dancing and public assembly, opening the door for these clandestine dancing and drinking events to secretly expand throughout Paris, in private homes, vacant basements, and small cafes. (laughs) ¶¶ 
Even after the occupation ended, these secret events didn't come above ground immediately. The discotheque was the only venue in which you could hear music that was outside the mainstream public service model of broadcast radio. And if you knew, you knew. You were part of an exclusive group. Plus, all of the artists they were listening to, like Charlie Parker, Count Basie, and Errol Garner, they were American, so no one in France could see them play live. Thus, the record was gold, and the DJ was king. One of the most important post-war nightclubs was the Whiskey A Go Go in Paris. Paul Passine opened the club in 1947, and it was the first place in France to have a jukebox. When Passine moved to a new location years later, his old location was taken over by Regine Zilberberg. She was a Belgian Jew who had spent years hiding from the Nazis and landed as a coat check girl at the Whiskey A Go Go. Chez Regine, as the old location had now come to be known by 1958, quickly became a popular hotspot for celebrities, including Zsa Zsa Gabor, Brigitte Bardot, and Salvador Dali. Chez Regine would also become the first European spot to be doing The Twist, a dance that by the early 60s had already begun shattering the old traditions of social dancing over in America. is pretty crucial to the story of disco. Premiering in Chubby Checker's first appearance on American Bandstand in 1960, the twist was a dance move unlike any the world had seen before it. It was a dance you could do solo, unlike the partner-only dances seen up until then. It was stationary rather than a traveling move, and it was simple. There were dance crazes before the twist, like the shake, the shimmy, the walk, and others. But while those were short-lived, the twist was an all-out cultural movement. John F. Kennedy was hosting twist parties at the White House. It was that big. For the older generation not tuning into American Bandstand, the twist arrived in New York City at local dive club The Peppermint Lounge. By 1961, celebrities like Marilyn Monroe and Judy Garland were reported to be doing the twist at this seedy locale. They danced to house band Joey D and the Starlighters, whose song Peppermint Twist would be at number one by the end of that year, thanks to the frenzy around the dance move. But why, you ask, would celebrities like Judy Garland and Marilyn Monroe slum it at this dive bar just to do the twist? Well, by the mid-60s, they started asking themselves that same thing. Borrowing from the French idea, private clubs and discotheques began popping up all around Manhattan to create a more high-end atmosphere for the city's elite to dance to the latest music. And celebrities were in full support. After Richard Burton left Sybil Burton for Elizabeth Taylor, Sybil opened the club Arthur in May 1965 with the help of almost 90 backers, including Julie Andrews and Leonard Bernstein. 
Fun fact, Arthur's disc jockey, Terry Knoll, is said to be the first DJ to blend records together so there would be no breaks between songs. The interior of Arthur was pop art inspired, plexiglass with smoked mirrors and primary colors. It was modern, sophisticated, and new. Later in the 60s, there was the nightclub The Cheetah, opened by Adlai Stevenson's son Borden, which took the idea of a discotheque and amped it up to over-the-top status. The Cheetah had an 8,000-square-foot dance floor, a movie theater, and a library and reading room for I don't really know who, but it was there. Other clubs started popping up, including Sanctuary, Le Jardin, The Gallery, and Salvation, all with so much energy bursting out of their four walls. If and when you were able to enter one of these hotspots, it was always a night to remember. It would soon become a game of garish one-upsmanship between the discotheques. Mirrored coffee tables, velvet banquettes, expensive lighting setups, costumes, bird cages hanging from the ceiling like chandeliers. So many of these places in New York would come to be known for their decadent, anything-goes atmospheres. One underground hotspot in early 1970s New York City was David Mancuso's loft on Broadway. These loft parties were a crucial part of disco because they helped drive a lot of the popularity of early disco music. Mancuso, a young music fan and antique dealer, threw these glitzy, members-only parties at his loft, playing an eclectic blend of soul, funk, and rock. He'd go crate digging for great hidden gems and play them at the parties. It was music people had never heard before, but they loved to dance to it. And as long as people were dancing, Mancuso was happy. One of the tracks he introduced at his loft parties was Sol Makosa by Cameroon artist Manu Dibango, released in 1972. Dibango's song would go on to be one of the earliest precursors to disco, and it's best known for its vocal refrain, the one Michael Jackson and Rihanna have since famously sampled. Mancuso would break a lot of fresh music to the New York scene and is credited with introducing basically the foundation of the disco sound to New York's DJ community. They'd hear a song at Mancuso's loft, hunt down the record, and play it for their own clubs the next weekend. Young New York music critic Vince Aletti began attending David Mancuso's parties and hearing this new music even he, a writer for Rolling Stone, had never heard before. But it had a familiar beat, exciting instrumentation, and it made people dance. Aletti would write about disco for the first time in 1973, a genre most of his editors didn't even know existed. His first piece was called Discotech Rock, which is now considered the first major piece to shine light on the still underground world of disco. Wa Su writes for The New Yorker that in the aftermath of the Stonewall riots and the civil rights movement, nightlife was still very segregated. To fight that, Mancuso made his parties inclusive of all races and all sexual orientations. In fact, his attitude toward inclusion was reflected all throughout the new clubs popping up in Manhattan. African Americans, the gay and lesbian communities, transgenders, psychedelics, Latinos, and others were made to feel welcome in these spaces. And as we get further on through the 70s, we'll find that the disco becomes a safe haven in a lot of ways for marginalized groups to thrive. Thank you for letting me be myself again. 
And this was just the beginning. Things are just ramping up on the Northeast discotheque scene, and everything's still pretty underground in the grand scheme of things. The discotheque hasn't quite gone mainstream yet, but we'll get into more culture, the opening of Studio 54, and the dance club trend expanding to the rest of the United States in the next episode. Right now, let's get into a little more of the evolution of the music itself. As the discotheque culture grew in America in the late 60s, the African-American music genres of soul, funk, and R&B were becoming increasingly popular. Along with Motown, Philly soul, and psychedelic soul, black artists laid all the groundwork of disco. Let's talk a little bit about each of these subgenres because they're all connected. Early Motown made a perfect dance track because of its simple structure, four-beat drum pattern, horns and strings, and killer vocalists. That resulted in Motown's involvement in a number of early songs hinting at disco, like the 1965 hit by the Supremes, You Keep Me Hanging On. The Temptations, another one of Motown's most famous groups, released a number of tracks throughout the 60s and 70s that lent themselves well to dance clubs that were popping up. Oh, oh. 
After leaving the Temptations in 1971, singer Eddie Kendricks made a name for himself in the Motown genre as a solo artist. Loft Party host David Mancuso heard his song Girl You Need a Change of Mind in passing one day and decided to play at his next party. It became a huge hit and led to a number of additional Motown hits for Eddie Kendricks. As the 60s and early 70s went on, another important component of the disco sound would reveal itself, Philadelphia soul music. Philly soul is a subgenre of soul music that was heavily influenced by funk. Similar to Motown, Philadelphia soul helped lay the groundwork for disco because of its unique and recognizable dance elements, fusing pop vocals with an R&B rhythm section and jazz influence. In February 1969, Jerry Butler released Only the Strong Survive, a record that would define the sound of Philadelphia International Records, the genre's notable record label. By the beginning of the 1970s, many black artists, especially those on the Motown label, started taking musical inspiration from Jimi Hendrix and 60s psychedelia, giving us psychedelic soul. Musically, it was a shift into a harder, darker edge style, very much influenced by the civil rights movement. In my eyes, psychedelic soul is some of the most powerful music I've ever listened to lyrically, and musically it's just on another level too. 
Acts like Edwin Starr, George Clinton, and the Parliament and Funkadelic ensembles utilize the production techniques and effects often heard in 60s psychedelic music, as well as some of the same drugs, too. Psychedelic soul played a major role in the development of disco in the early 1970s, with established acts like The Temptations and The Supremes working within the genre. Perhaps one of the most well-known psych soul bands was Sly and the Family Stone, who helped pioneer the genre. By 1971, soul, psychedelic soul, funk, and R&B would reach a mass audience through the TV show Soul Train. And with a shift from psych soul to the sub-sub-genre known as cinematic soul, movies too. Artists like Isaac Hayes created cinematic soul by adding orchestral instrumentation, like his theme song for Shaft. Who is a man that would risk his neck for his brother man? 
Not to mention Curtis Mayfield's soundtrack for the 1972 film Superfly, a collection of music that would help pioneer the Soul Concept album. In 1972, there was a healthy mix of new artists on the psych, soul, and funk scenes, but also plenty of artists well into their careers who were staying relevant by shifting to this new sound. Many of R&B's most renowned artists of the early 60s were releasing tracks that would end up being some of disco's earliest hits, like the OJs and their hit song Love Train in 1972. The OJ's 1973 song, Now That We Found Love, would also be a pre-disco hit and would go on to be covered by artists through the 90s. The Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, got involved too. Her 1972 funk song, Rocksteady, is freaking awesome. Even Stevie Wonder's funk rock song Superstition had that great clavinet and driving bass groove that would inspire some of disco's biggest musical moments. The song was just made for dancing.
1973, disco had really begun taking shape. We know writer Vince Aletti used the term disco to define the genre in his first Rolling Stone piece. And those psychedelic elements would never really disappear from disco. Musically, psych music's influence never left. And then its other elements, hallucinogenic drug use, freeform dancing, free love, the idea of a countercultural movement, these were all things that would go on to define disco too. The hippies of the 60s truly had an influence on early 70s soul in attitude too. While a lot of funk and psych soul took its cue from the edgier and darker side of the counterculture, there were artists influenced by the positivity and earnestness of the hippie movement, creating what is now deemed proto-disco. Sol Makosa, the song we heard earlier, is one of the more famous examples of proto-disco. Another one of those that would be an early disco hit was MFSB's The Sound of Philadelphia, or as it was usually shortened and referenced on the radio, TSOP. MFSB also released Love is the Message, which became another favorite of disco DJs by the mid-70s. There was also Love's Theme, an instrumental piece written by Barry White and performed by the Love Unlimited Orchestra. Are you gathering a theme here? Love. Around the early to mid-70s was when Disco found my dad, a 20-something living and working in the Midwest. And I was curious, how did he become a fan of Disco? I became a kind of a Disco fan uh, slowly. I was working in a record store, and that music attracted me because people were buying the, the records, not... Not big sales, but they were interesting music. And, and of course, I have always had different music choices and such. But I, I think I just went with some friends um, and then liked it. And then it kind of snowballed from there. What other music were you listening to before disco, while you were deep into the disco scene, and then like just after disco? Before disco... I was probably coming out of my heavy time uh, in a bit of in a bit of coincidence. Uh, one of your recent podcasts was Black Sabbath. I had Paranoid. <laughs> I had I want to think it was I, I can't remember which other ones that probably like Master of Reality. Um, is there was there a four? Yeah. Okay, I had four. I, I but I was listening to Chicago, 
Doobie Brothers. And, oh, I will say this. I was listening to the Bee Gees. And we can get into that, well, how I was listening to the Bee Gees before disco. Um, but I, I had several Bee Gees albums. I, as you know, as a personal note, you know that my music tastes have always been... Eclectic? Uh, eclectic, bordering on psychotic, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking at one playlist the other day I have on Spotify, and there was uh, some of this disco music that I've been listening to that I've rediscovered and I put on one of my playlists next to uh, Keith Urban's The Fighter. So, uh, you know, <laughs> how do you, but, but I listen to the music because I, I, it's a purpose. That's a bike. That's a, a cycling music or running music. I, the song doesn't particularly mean that much to me. It's just good music that, mm -hmm. to, that keeps you running or keeps you pedaling or, or working out. So my my music tastes before were, were all over all over the map. And of course, during didn't really change that much. Yeah, Once again, I mean, it really didn't. It, I didn't stop listening to other music. I just had a new... I had new tastes or new uh, additional tastes. Was disco for you the kind of music that you would put on a record in your house and listen to? Or was it was it more of the action of going out dancing where you heard the music? That's a good question. I I think I listened to the music. I think I had some you know some records and you know that I would listen to around the house or in the car. But I think a lot of that music translated better when it was, you know, it turned up full blast and beating and, you know, with, with a good beat and so forth. Though Gloria Gaynor had been a recording artist since the 1960s, her breakthrough really came in 73-74 when she released the album Never Can Say Goodbye on MGM Records. She'd go on to be a disco sensation, and we'll talk about her a lot more in the next episode. But her earliest hit was this cover of the Jackson 5 song of the same name, Never Can Say Goodbye. Just like any genre, disco had its share of one-hit wonders, most of which came later on in the 70s, and we'll cover a lot of those. But one of the very first was Carl Douglas's 1974 hit, Kung Fu Fighting. Everybody was
And they weren't necessarily one-hit wonders, but Cool and the Gang had an interesting relationship with the disco era. Their hit song, Jungle Boogie, became a popular nightclub track in 1974, but then strangely, they wouldn't have another hit until 1979, as disco was on its way out. With funk, soul, and disco fast approaching the top of the Billboard charts, and the concept of the discotheque beginning to spread rapidly to more major cities, the United States was about to catch disco fever. It would take over absolutely everything. And that's where we'll pick up in the next episode. What's the sense in sharing? Next time on Radio Gaga, we'll get to the height of disco and more artists that brought the genre to the mainstream, including Donna Summer, the Bee Gees, Gloria Gaynor, and one of the principal architects of the mainstream disco sound, Giorgio Moroder. We'll talk about what makes a disco song, from the instruments to tempo, and the opening of Studio 54. We'll also get more insight from my dad on what was flying off the shelves at the record store and what it was like going to the disco. There's also a number of decidedly non-disco artists who created songs just to join the trend, including the Rolling Stones, Dolly Parton, and yes, even the Grateful Dead. I'll see you back here next time. (laughs) 